If you have a Bible, um, you can open it to 1 Corinthians. That's where we are going to be. Um, we are in a series called Counterculture about how we live different uh, than the world. The church believers that know Christ live differently than the world. Um, we'll, be, we'll be there in chapter 6. Uh, we'll also be uh, participating in the Lord's Supper as we uh, close our time together under the Word and then transition another way we would worship around the table. And I think especially important um, this week as, as we tackle the text that, that so many struggle with. And here's what I'd say about as we enter into 1 Corinthians 6. If you are a young person, I especially think this is important for you, a biblical understanding of sexuality like Steve talked about. Um, and I would say if you're a young person ages 1 to 99, all right, you should really pay attention because this is a, a way that many are falling in our culture and many probably in this room struggle with, but we're really good at putting facades on. And so uh, just be open to what the Spirit does. Uh, I'm going to read from chapter 6, verses 12 through 20. Let me read here from verse 12 through verse 20. In this letter, Paul is writing to the Corinthian church, re relevant for us today. He says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Well, I'm going to pray for us. Uh, one of the things I love about this church is we just go through the Bible. We don't skip over anything, and it's there before us, and, and it's God's wisdom and, and words for us. And so we tackle tough subjects because they're there. And, and so today I just ask you to pray again. Pray that God would uh, inform you, that he would change your heart, that he would uh, free people from bondage in this area, and that he would be glorified. You pray, um, and then I'll pray for us collectively. Father in heaven, we, we do praise you for your word, its truth, its power. It's more than just ink on a page. It's your very voice and heart speaking to us truth. That's such a hard thing in our culture these days to even wrap our minds around. There's so much falsehood. Father, we need truth. We need people that hear absolute truth and, and, and righteousness. And Father, I pray that we would hear that, that it would sink into our hearts. Help us, Lord, as we are feeble and frail. You know our frame, Psalm 103 says, we're dust, we, we mess up, we trip over ourselves. We need Jesus. And so tune our hearts to him. Father, thank you for his gift of salvation, his perfect life, his death for us, so that we might have life. We pray these things in his name and all God's people said. I want to begin with a story 
I'm going to read this as a pastor, a popular pastor writes this reflection. I think it's helpful as we enter into this particular text. This is what he says. He says, Friday morning, I looked out of the bedroom window as I was buttoning my shirt and saw a parable of a modern American life. A middle-aged man in a three-piece green suit was walking westward toward our house on the north side of 18th Street. He had something yellow in his right hand, perhaps a banana peel or a potato chip bag, I couldn't tell. As he walked along, he looked left across the street, then he turned and looked behind him, and then he tossed the yellow thing over the fence by the freeway. In that little episode, there are at least two marks of secular American life. One of them is practical atheism, and the other is physical hedonism or pleasure. Practical atheism, the freeway fence was on his right, concealing the bushes. He could see to the front as he walked. The ground was underneath, and he covered himself to the left and behind with a glance. Why didn't he look up? Because at that moment, he was a practical atheist. There might have been someone to the left or behind that mattered, but there was no one in heaven that mattered. American life is by and large atheistic when it comes to bananas and potato chips. What people say is not what they show in their practical atheism. It is whether they look up when they are alone. The second thing is physical pleasure or hedonism. The other mark of American life I saw in this, why did this fellow want to throw the yellow thing away or why did this fellow want to throw, that's where I read it, right? Yellow thing away instead of carrying it to a can. Because it was inconvenient to carry. It was annoying, unpleasant. But why did he look over his shoulder before he tossed it? Because his conscience told him it was an action that is not good and that people would disapprove. So a minor skirmish went on in his soul. It lasted about five seconds. Shall I opt for the pleasure of not carrying this thing, or shall I opt for the pleasure of a clear conscience? Clearly was it not much of a battle. The physical pleasure won out, and that is another mark of our culture. Physical hedonism, if it feels good to your body, why deny yourself? The curse of our culture is that physical pleasures are desired more strongly than spiritual rightness or joy. And of course, the two things go together, practical atheism and physical hedonism. Once God is out of the picture, then my conscience has no ultimate significance as a part of God's image. And so let us eat, drink, and litter the freeway, for tomorrow we die. And that's it. If you can just keep God out of the bananas and potato chips of your life, then you can proceed with your indulgences. I read that and I thought, wow, that is how we operate at times. We have this struggle of will, and we say, you know, I want to do what I want to do, and culture around us like trains us to think that way, and fail often to look up and see what does God say, or what does God view, or what does God think of what I'm doing, or what I'm about to do. And I think all of us can relate to this particular scenario. You see, Paul is addressing the church in Corinth, and if you haven't been here following along, he's writing this letter to a very dysfunctional church, i.e., our church, Real Hope, any other church full of sinners that like wanders and he's writing correction to them and and knowledge to them on all of these subjects. And he comes to this one about bananas and potato chip bags. And so it's very relevant for us too in a culture that is largely modeled or, or infused rather with sexual perversion. And he continues on with his rebuke in this letter of their lax Christian behavior, the way they view this, think about it, talk about it with their friends. And he reminds them, which we reminded last week, of their standing in Christ. 
as a believer of Jesus, here is who you are. And he closes the section much in the same way that we were bought by the blood of Christ. That Christ came, died for sin, and that he redeemed our lives. Therefore, we should glorify God. We are not our own. We are bought with a price. Glorify God with your bodies. He's saying, this is what Jesus has done for you. Don't treat it lightly. There was a cost and a high one for purchasing our redemption. So Paul is addressing, check this out, like if this is you, which often it's me, the lazy, ungrateful, irreverent attitude of Corinthian believers, particularly when it comes to sex and physical pleasure. And he does so by introducing this popular phrase at the time, all things are lawful for me. That's where he starts in this first section of the passage. All things are lawful. Now, why does he do this? It sounds like this would be a typical cultural way to read your Bible. People sit down, all things are lawful for me. Okie dokie. All right? That's what most people would want to do. But Paul does this strategically. Freedom in Christ was always a mantra for Paul. A couple verses on the screen from Galatians here, 5.1 and then 5.13. For freedom Christ has set us free. He wanted people to know that. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. He was saying that Christ redeemed us. We live in grace. We're free. We couldn't keep the law. And in verse 13, he later writes, For you were called to freedom. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Paul is a grace guy, as he should be. We couldn't earn salvation, and so he writes, you're free, you don't live under the law anymore, you live in grace. And he preached this often as a former Jew that lived under the law. And we know we can't keep it. Christ came and kept the law for us. We live under grace now, we have freedom. We have no longer this need or attitude to be enslaved by chains that we couldn't break on our own. That's a workspace mentality. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, it'll be up there, you know it well. For it's by grace that you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Next verse there, not a result of works so that no one may boast. Paul was all about grace. We read in Romans 4 at the end last week, we're counted righteous because of Jesus, justified before God. And we must know this, pay attention to this, it'll be on the screen. A Christian True, repentant, and born-again follower of Jesus Christ, that's what a Christian really is, can commit no sin that is not already covered by God's grace. So if you're here today and you think that you could commit a sin that removes, if you know Christ already, that takes away the grace of God, you're wrong. There is no sin that you could commit that could move you outside of the grace of God if you are truly bought with his blood and saved and redeemed. That is something a lot of people struggle with. I meet with people all the time. I'm too... I've done too much, and they work their whole life tipping the scales of good works, trying to pay God back, simply cannot be done. There is no sin a true follower of Jesus can commit that is not already covered by God's grace. Do you get that? If you have placed your faith in Christ Jesus for forgiveness of your sins, not the world's, anyone else's, your sins, and have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you, you are free. Christ has taken the chains off and set you free. You live in grace. Breathe. Yeah? That's the truth of the gospel, and extremely important because the, all that Paul writes following that, having to know that, hinges on our understanding that you have been saved by Christ. There's simply nothing you could do to earn your salvation, nothing you could do to lose it. When we think the opposite, here's what, on this topic particularly, become crippled in fear and guilt and shame. Always wondering when God is going to strike us down because of our sin. And in sexual sin, people operate that way all the time. 
always wondering when God is going to strike you down because you committed X, Y, Z. I've heard it best said this way. Religion says, I messed up. My dad is going to kill me. The gospel says, I messed up. I need to call my dad. That's the difference between religion and the gospel. When we understand religion, we say, oh, I'm always dancing around waiting for like, God to like, strike me dead in my place. That's religion. That's a scary place to be. The gospel is a free place to be. I messed up. I want to go and spend time repenting of sin and being back in fellowship with the Father. That's the freedom that Jesus offered. That's what he offers still today. And Paul is all about that message, and he is continually resting in grace, calling his dad all the time, urging the church to call the dad his father all the time. And so he begins, all things are lawful for me. But then he had something important we need to keep reading. Not all things are helpful or permissible. Not all things. All things are lawful, but I will not be enslaved by anything. A better translation here is profitable, that word. There are many different translations in uh, the Greek there, and the profitable really is, is the best way that I think to look at it. You see, in a liberated society, the Corinthians said this phrase often, like our cultural, our culture today. Whatever you want to do, do it. YOLO, right? You only live once. Everything is fine. The problem with that logic is that while every sin is forgiven in Christ, no sin is ever right or good or profitable. Profit by its own definition means to be of advantage. No sin ever brings you true advantage. We think it does often in our fleshly way, but it doesn't. Profit. Sin never does that. It only brings loss. The opposite of that. The price for sin is often terribly high. Never high enough to lose salvation, but always high enough to lose here. And that's why I said for young people, you don't get that all the time because you think you're invincible. And when you get aged in life and down the road a little bit, you learn that sin has consequences, natural ones. And some of the people in this room are living with some of those consequences. They're living in God's grace, but they live in the consequence of poor decisions through the years. That's the price of sin. And particularly, Paul has this in mind in sexual sin, which I think is different than a lot of sins in that it does seem to capture more people or trap them in more bondage. You'll look specifically at this, but I want to also just kind of look at sin in general. I think we can apply this generally to all areas of sin. The truth exists specifically about sexual sin. I want to make these three points to us today as Paul writes them. Number one, it's always harmful to everyone involved. Number two, it gains control over those who indulge in it. And number three, it perverts God's purpose for the body. So diving in, number one, it's always harmful to everyone involved. Paul says all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. What you are doing doesn't just go unnoticed. You have to understand that. In the area of sexual sin or any sin for that matter, it affects you and it affects others. It brings damage. It destroys self-image, self-worth, relationships. None of it is profitable or helpful. You look at the example of David, a man after God's own heart. Yes, King David, but he had consequences when he sinned, when he was adulterous towards Bathsheba. He lost his son, entered into his family, was division and sword that God said, that'll never leave your house. He had consequence. He was repentant of that particular sin, and he turned back towards God, but it had consequence. It wasn't, I think David would say that wasn't helpful, losing a child because of God's judgment over that sin, having division and the sword and, and fighting and death in his house, his household line for 
for generations to come, he experienced great loss. And when you sin in that way, you're not invincible like you think you are. Satan loves to trick us that, like, just go and do that, go and touch that. This is like not a new principle, right? All the way back in the garden. Did God really say, don't eat? It's this temptation. And just because God lavishes grace on your salvation does not mean he doesn't love you enough to bring discipline and allow us to live through our consequences and action. We talk about that in Sunday school this morning. Discipline. It's a good thing. So Paul begins, yeah, everything is lawful, but not everything is helpful. There is no sin that is right, leading to number two. It gains control for those who indulge in it. The end of verse 12 says, I will not be enslaved by anything. Paul wrote about this elsewhere in Romans, Romans 6, 14. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law but grace. He was saying, because you live in grace, you should not have a sin that enslaves you. You shouldn't go and let that thing enslave you. You live freely now. Don't go and put yourself in situations where your guilt like shames you and you feel like, like poor and wretched that you can't show your face. He said, God, God provided Jesus for that, but don't go and act against the gospel in that way. And I find that no, more, no sin is more enslaving than sexual sin. It grows and grows. It creates the shame, guilt, bondage. And Paul recognizes that when he says, you committed this, these, these consequences are, are likened to this enslaving, wrapping chains around your heart and controlling you as you try and move forward. And some of you that have had that happen and you've stepped into a wrong area, you know that feeling of enslavement, guilt, shame, and standing in front of others and they know what you've done. If you've fallen and you know what that's like, but thank God that's not the end of your story. If you know Christ. And Paul is writing, this doesn't have to end this way. There's hope doesn't mean the consequences immediately disappear. But I'm trying, like Paul, to help us get the gravity of this. If you're a young person here, it is extremely important that you honor your body and keep it from sin, especially sexual sin. It will follow you all the rest of your days. Now, there's no way I can address this particular topic and not offer some of you who may be dying inside to like offer some practical advice. How do I get out of this? How do I be free from this struggle in my life in this area. Ultimately, Christ will bring you alone or bring healing and grace himself alone. But there are steps that you can take. And I'm just going to list these five. I'm not going to spend a lot of time. The first one is that you need to be honest that you're not in control. And this is sin principle in general. Some of us have secret sin that nobody knows about. Be honest and you are, and acknowledge that you have no control. Most of us, we like tame the lion of our sin. No, I'm good. I have it under control, whether it's alcoholism, drug addiction, stealing, you name it, sexual sin. Most of us say, no, I think I've got it under control. This ferocious lion, tamed. You have to be honest about that. That's the first thing you have to do. The second thing is to just repent and turn back to God and say, I want to trust the Lord and turn to him. And in your honesty, and that's a part of repentance, acknowledge that God is the only one that can help. The third thing would be seek accountability. Some of you, I have no doubt, are fighting this thing alone. And there's people in this church family who could come alongside you and say, yeah, I've been through that. I'll, I'll help you, be, I'll help you like, lift your head in that. I'll help be an accountability person if that's a struggle and you need that. That's the gracious beauty of a gospel community. 
The fourth thing is that you need to discipline yourself. And I think the greatest example in the scriptures was Joseph when he ran. Potiphar's wife, that whole mess, that whole setup, and she was trying to tempt him, lure him into sin. Didn't work out by God's sovereignty. It worked out great, but like he ran from that. But that's what we ought to do, right? Run when that temptation comes. So many of us are fine to like control it and just like not, you know, I, I always, blows my mind, and I'm, I'm just going to say this, and you'd be offended by it if you want. Like, I don't really care much about that when the Spirit's leading words. But like, it blows my mind when people are ex-alcoholics and friends of theirs take them to a bar or have that in their home. I'll never get that. Like, why put that before them in temptation? And some people in the church do that. Invite people over that struggle in different ways, and then there it is. Like, don't do that. That's not helpful, all right? Think about that. We need to flee from that stuff. And then the fifth thing would be to reconcile to others you brought harm to. That's often a step that we just don't do, to go back to people that maybe we've harmed in different ways because like, oh, God's restored and forgiven. But that's part of the disciplined life too is going back to those people that maybe you did not honor Christ with. So those are five things that you can do practically. If you need a reminder, come and find me at the end. I'll keep moving here. Paul knew something about this. He knew he had to train and discipline himself. He says this in 1 Corinthians 9.27, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others I myself should be disqualified. Paul was an apostle, but he fought the battle of his flesh. I don't do what I want to do. I do what I don't want to do. This is constant. And he said, I have to discipline my body and life so that I would not become disqualified. Not that he said I would not become unsaved or lose my salvation, but he said holy living is important. It requires discipline. Number one, it's harmful to everyone when we sin. Number two, it gains control over those who indulge in it. And number three, it perverts God's purpose for the body. The rest of the text, Paul unpacks this. Specifically, Paul's concern was a right understanding of the body. And here's what he says in three things. He says, number one, the body is for the Lord. Verses 13 and 14. Food is meant for the stomach, stomach for food. God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual... What is he doing there, stomach and food? What is Paul saying? What is the relationship between stomach and food? They are meant for each other, right? We have a stomach so we can consume food and eat it. You, you need both there. That's where it goes to nourish our body. He said that's what's meant for each other. But the Corinthians likely used that analogy in their like lax way for sex in the body, right? That's what the body is for. They're meant for each other. They got that wrong in so many ways. Food in the stomach, you see, are temporal. But the body, this is why they got it wrong, is eternal. That is why Paul says what he says in Philippians 3. It starts to make sense then. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to the subject of all things himself. So yes, our fleshly body decays and goes in the ground, but our body is eternal in the sense of our soul, what Christ is doing, and all of these sins affect our soul. He's saying that's where your understanding is wrong. The body is meant for the Lord in eternity as a believer. And he says, number two, the body is a member of Christ. Look at verses 15 through 18. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them a members of a prostitute? Never. 
Or do you not know that he who is joined for, to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. And then he says, flee. Look at what Paul writes. Your body is now a member of Christ Jesus himself. So think about that literally. It is like you are a physical part of his body. Think about it literally because it makes more sense that way. Like he is the head, which it says in Ephesians, and we believers are members, parts of the body. So it is like you are an arm or a leg attached to him doing whatever you want. Does that make more sense now? That's what Paul is saying. It's like you being an arm or a leg in the body of Christ. Think of, and I'm, I'm, we're all looking at it, right? The picture of Jesus on the wall in everyone's living room, blue-eyed, not how he really looked. But like people see that and it's like, oh, that, oh, Jesus is always watching us. Paul's saying this is a little different than Jesus is always watching us. He's saying you're part of his body. That means everything you do represents his body in perfect righteousness. That's who we know and should view Jesus in perfect holiness. And he says, when you sin, it's as if you're looking like as an arm up to the head, the eyes, and being like, ah, I'm doing what I want here. It becomes a little more real to us. Paul says, should you take yourself then and prostitute them out? Paul says that sexual sin and sex in general joins flesh together. Think about the gravity of what he is saying. When you do this, you become one with that other person. That's what he says in verse 16, which is why it's only designed in marriage for a man and a woman. There's this lasting union and right relationship, and only brokenness and pain comes when you separate that or, or rip that apart. And so verse 17 comes along. Paul adds profound implications to us as believers. He who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Here it is. When you commit sin, and you know the sin that I'm talking about, the guilt that I'm talking about, because it's in your soul right now. It's as if Christ is not just right beside you, but it's a part of you, and you a part of him. That's why when we sin, that's that analogy at the beginning, when we throw the banana peel over the fence, something doesn't feel right in our soul at that moment. So what does Paul say? Run. When that temptation comes along. He knows we're weak. What should that man who was walking along the freeway with the, the banana peel or the potato chip bag, he should have ran as fast as he could to the nearest garbage can. That's what you and I ought to do when sin comes our way. Run as fast as we can because we are members of Christ. Paul continues in verse 18. Why is this so important here? Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. All of those other sins are different than sexual sins. Sexual sins are not just committed outside the body. They're committed to your own body. And they seem the other ones don't affect you. as. That's why I think this one's different. They don't affect you as much as sexual sin affects you. You're not sinning against just your own physical body, but against the body of Christ, Jesus himself, as members of the body. Think about that. And Paul illustrates this why and gives a reason rather because the body is the temple of the Holy Spirit as he closes this passage here. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you whom you have from God? You are not your own for you were bought with a price so glorify God in your body. Here it is friends. God dwells inside of us as believers. And this isn't some external relationship that many of you might just think of God is outside of me. He's in you, and we don't belong to ourselves anymore. That is, like, that is the hardest American thing to hear. I say it all the time. When 
when we want to just like claim the stake on our own rights and God's word comes along and says, you don't belong to you. Well, don't you know I'm American, Republican, and I have a gun? Did I sound like I was from Kentucky, did I? Yeah, a little bit. I work on that with Russell a little bit. But that's, that's the most un-American thing when we read the Bible. We were, we're not our own. What do you mean like I can't do it? Paul says, no, you were bought by the blood of Christ. You're not your own. You don't get to do what you want. This is like the hardest thing for you kids in the room, teenagers. Like when your parents tell you, you know what? You don't just get to just live here and do whatever you want. Mama, go to my room. If you're my kid in the back row, you know what my room is. It doesn't exist in our house because it's my room. They don't have a room. And I don't even make them pay rent. Yeah, wow. That's a surprise too. And that is the battle in our soul. That's the tug of war in our soul that happens so often between practical atheism, which is worship, or and practical atheism and worship, and between our own pleasure and the Lord's will. That's the tug of war that happens when we sin. And we need to recognize we were bought at a price because of Jesus Christ living perfectly and dying a sinner's death on the cross for us so we could live. That's the gift of grace. And that's his offer. That's where we always want to close our time together. That's his offer of the gospel for anyone who has committed any sin, sexual or otherwise. We're invited by faith to the foot of the cross to take hold of the gift. Accepted and restored and renewed. That's grace. So whatever your story is, if this struck a nerve because you relate to it, whatever your shame or guilt is, God will and can forgive in Christ and you need only to trust him. That's the beauty of it. Paul says, glorify God in your body. Listen to this. There are only two commands. If you go through this text, there are only two commands. Two things which we ought to obey in response to what Paul writes. The one is flee from sexual morality. Run, right? He said run from it. That's one command that we can say tangibly, I need to, how will I obey this in the scripture? He says run. And some of you, I've seen you run, you're slow. But he says in this, run fast. As fast as you can go, run fast. And the second thing is glorify God in your body. Your body's a gift. It doesn't, this has so many other implications than just sexual sin. This is about how we eat, how we exercise, everything, how we work. He says it's a gift. It doesn't belong to you. Despite what culture says, glorify God in it. The next time you find yourself tempted to pursue your own pleasure, your own selfish flesh, and I'm guessing that you will look to the left and behind you. But what will determine whether you win or lose the battle from moment to moment is if you look up when you are alone. That's what it will be. Author C.S. Lewis reminds us that it isn't our desires that are too strong, but our failure to understand how much enjoyment we can find in knowing God. And he writes this, and I'll leave us with this. He would, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. Friends, we're going to celebrate this at the table. We have been offered a holiday at the sea the pleasure and joy of knowing Christ, 
the pleasure of spending time walking with God, enjoying His Word, His creation in a body that glorifies Him. And our sin pleasures will never succeed in bringing us joy the way that they're advertised. Only Christ can do that. Think of a more fitting text, but to leave us with this from Romans chapter 8, verse 37 through 39, it says this, No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Have a blessed day. Go in peace. You are sent.